welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. When one makes beautiful music, it's a praise to the Lord, but when many do ring the bells, uh, it's an honor to him, isn't it? It wasn't this way all long ago, but now almost all Christian churches say that they believe in the second coming of Christ, and many of them believe that the second coming is very near. And it does make good sense about preparing for an event like that, doesn't it? People out there in the world, many of them don't want to meet their creator. Do we as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, do we wish to really meet our creator? You know, even the tabloids at the checkout counters uh, in the supermarkets are screaming about it. The people in the Midwest were told early in the spring to be, be prepared for the tornadoes that were coming. And most of the folks who were in that zone made preparations in case the big wind would come. And we keep being told out here in the West Coast that the next earthquake is just around the corner and we ought to be prepared for it too. It makes good sense, doesn't it? To prepare for an event that you know will come, uh, you don't know exactly when. But there's one big question that divides Christians regarding the second coming of Christ. And that is, do we need a special preparation to be ready for Jesus' coming? And many people say, no, just uh, be a good Christian, live your life day by day, that's all you can do to be ready. Uh, and if you should die suddenly, make sure that you have all of your debts paid up and make sure that your sins are all confessed day by day. And please, by all means, keep going to church and trust in the Lord. And that's all that is necessary to be ready for Jesus' coming. If Jesus were to come today, you'd be ready. It's all the same as dying. If you're ready and you die in a plane crash, then you're okay. Well, there are many pastors and there are many evangelists who tell us that there is no special preparation. Just live a good life, do the best that you can, and you'll be ready either to die or to meet Jesus and be translated when he comes. Well, can we apply good sense to preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? A big question is, when Jesus returns, will he come in person? And will he come in the glory of the Father? And will he come in the glory of all of the angels? The answer to that is absolutely yes. And then there's another text about the coming of Jesus in Hebrews 12, verse 29, that says that our God is a consuming fire. So if anyone has sin that's buried in his or her heart, even sin that he or she is not aware of, why, to meet God face to face, what would be the result? That would be sudden death, wouldn't it? That would be like 
putting a spoon in the microwave when you heat up your lunch, sparks would fly, wouldn't it? It's exactly what happens with the wicked when Jesus comes back, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that those who do not know God and that obey not the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come. Jesus says that only the pure in heart will be able to see God without perishing. And Isaiah says in chapter 33, verse 14, Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that stoppeth his his ears from hearing of blood and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. Talk about watching television. You know, what really interests us? And the context of these verses in Isaiah is the sinners in Zion. Yes, the church members themselves. Well, there is a special preparation that is needed for the second coming of Jesus. And that special preparation is not some sort of fear-induced frenzy of good works, but it is a clearer understanding of the gospel of Jesus' grace, his gift to you. And by grace we are saved, and by grace will God's people experience translation, and that is through faith. So what is the difference between getting ready to die and getting ready for the second coming of Christ? Well, some would answer none whatsoever, but common sense dictates to us that there has to be a difference because the latter group are a special group who gain the victory over the mark of the beast and his image and over the number of his name, and they stand on the sea of glass, and therefore they go through the seven last plagues of Revelation chapter 15. And they also sing a new song before the throne. And no man can learn that song but that special group who are at last the firstfruits unto God and unto the Lamb. They are without fault before the throne of God. Revelation 14, 1-5. So theirs is obviously a special experience. But it's not a works trip. They are not little Christs who are running around all puffed up with spiritual pride saying, I don't sin anymore. No, a million times no to that. Theirs is going to be, if you please, a faith trip in Jesus. A people whose faith has matured. It's grown up unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Henceforth, no longer being tossed to and fro as little children. Ephesians 4, 15. You know, children are wonderful, and they're innocent. I love to look into the faces of our little children. I love to pray with our children. But it's a tragedy to grow up and become an adult and be infantile in our spiritual thinking. A tragedy. The Lord wants us to grow up in agape, in his love. Could it be that the time has finally come when God is serious about getting a people ready 
for the second coming of Christ? Could it be? Well, the Savior dares not come while they still have sin buried in their hearts because our God is a consuming fire and his coming, therefore, would be a disaster to them and all of the dead must remain prisoners in their graves until the life giver returns to resurrect them. Therefore, everything depends on God's people getting ready for him to come. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is working night and day. He's working seven days a week. He's working on holidays, preparing a people for the second coming of Christ. Are you letting him work? Ezekiel. Where's Daniel? (laughs) Now, even a child can see that there's something special involved in Jesus' coming. You know, there is a final examination that is coming. There's a great test that Revelation 13 talks about. You know what that great test is? It's called the mark of the beast. That in one final issue is going to divide the sheep from the goats forever. The mark of the beast will involve great signs, Jesus says, and wonders in so much that if it were possible, it would deceive who? The very elect in Matthew 24, verse 24. So never in history have God's people met such a test. Jesus said, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. In other words, many who profess now to keep the Ten Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will turn traitor and accept the mark of the beast. And Paul sobers us up even more when he warns us, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. You know, Peter was so cocksure that he would never fall, but all it took was a little girl, perhaps in her teens or just out of her teen years, to overthrow him and his faith and integrity. But the good news is that the alternative to the mark of the beast is the seal of God. The seal of God is the self-giving love of our Heavenly Father, which drove him to give his only begotten Son for your sins. And the good news is that Jesus has that self-giving love to impart to you. And that involves a special work a special work of purification of the heart. We read in 1 John chapter 3, 2 and 3, that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So we are living right now in the great cosmic day of atonement that And that precisely is the work of the great high priest. He wants to purify you with his agape love. So don't hinder him. Let him do that for you. Cooperate with him in every way possible. Jesus promised, I will come again. And he's clearly explained 
Matthew 24, that his coming will be a personal and literal coming, that he will resurrect the dead in Christ. He, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that those who will be resurrected are the dead in Christ who have chosen to abide in him. So the question makes real sense, what kind of special preparation will those people make who go through the final time of trouble, who face the mark of the beast, overcome the mark of the beast, who stand on the sea of glass without fault and actually welcome Christ's second coming? Well, the Bible's full of good news, but here is where it especially focuses into brilliant light for us. First of all, it first comes what appears on the surface, maybe, to be bad news. The Holy Spirit is going to be like a great spotlight into the darkened chambers of the human heart until every secret, previously unknown sin is mercifully exposed. And God's people will be painfully aware of the deep existence of sin that they had never before realized. And every last vestige of spiritual pride will be laid in the dust. And this popular, glib, superficial concept, I'm okay, you're okay, is going to be shattered by the realization that not a one of us is one whit better or righteous than another, and that none of us have righteousness of ourselves more than anybody else in the world. The sin of somebody else, we will realize, could be our sin, but for the grace of God. Aren't you so glad the grace of God keeps you from exposing all of that selfishness inside of you because that would expose you as naked, wouldn't it? What an embarrassment that would be. But the grace of God keeps you from that. You see, the only one that was really, truly exposed naked was Jesus on the cross. Sin was exposed in all of its nakedness on the cross. But Jesus paid that price to you so that you never have to be embarrassed that way. And you can be clothed in the garments of his righteousness. Aren't you thankful for that? That's why Isaiah says, in that day they will say, their righteousness is of me. Their righteousness is of me. Isaiah 54, 17. Not of ourselves. And what will be the crowning sin in which they will realize that they share the guilt of? The crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Each will see herself at the cross. And then comes the good news. It says, There shall be a fountain open for cleansing that will flow in unprecedented glory. Zechariah 13, verse 1. Grace will abound much more corresponding to the much more conviction of sin that God's people will experience. And the final negative will be matched by the final positive. A people will be ready for Jesus' coming. Well, it's one of the most serious topics of debate. 
in Bible classes, in Sabbath school classes? Can God's people do anything to hasten, to delay the coming of Christ? Probably just asking that question causes some sparks to fly, but the question is so important that we need to look at what actually the Bible says. We are not to know the day or the hour according to the Bible. Not even the angels know the day or the hour. Neither does Jesus know the hour of his coming according to Mark 13, 32. But we are to know when it is near. We read, When ye shall see at the, all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Matthew 24, 33. And he expressly declared that the generation which will see and recognize all those signs is not to pass away till all these things be fulfilled, verse 34. Now the timing of his coming will catch everybody by surprise. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Ye know not when the master of the house cometh, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, Matthew 24, 42. Nowhere does the Bible say that the timing of Jesus' coming is irrevocably fixed by the Father in a predestination manner, but the Father in his infinite foreknowledge knows the time. But foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. But still, Jesus does not know. He says he does not know. In his love and his mercy, the Father will not permit the final seven last plagues of Revelation 16 to fall until in fairness to his people of the world, he has a people who have been given opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. It says the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, Matthew 24, 14. Now that would seem to strongly suggest that the timing of the second coming is directly related to the zeal with which that special gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. Twice at least the Bible declares that the time of the second coming is dependent on a process of development in the hearts and lives of his people. Now why have 2,000 years of human suffering had to drag on by since Christ the Savior of the world, was born? Why do so many people have to go on suffering? Because at Jesus' birth, the angel promised good tidings of great joy to all people, peace, goodwill toward men. He would make wars to cease unto the end of the earth, and he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment on the earth and that the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Why the long delay? And the popular view that is taught through most of these 2,000 years is that when good people die, they go straight to heaven, or at least to purgatory, to be purified for heaven, which is the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul, But the Bible teaches that those who die sleep until the resurrection day. And the resurrection day depends upon what? The second coming of Christ. Why? Because he alone is the one that can raise the dead. 
And when Jesus returns, those who are not ready will not be able to endure the glory of his appearing. And therefore, the time of Christ's second coming depends on his people getting ready. For he would not dare to come if they were not ready. Jesus likens their getting ready to a farmer's crop that is growing up. It's maturing until it's ready for the harvest. And the growing up makes it possible for him to come the second time in order to what? Reap the harvest. Jesus is the one who reaps the harvest. But the crop cannot become mature until the latter rain of the Holy Spirit's outpouring comes. You know, the earlier, the former rain fell at the Pentecost, at the beginning of the Christian dispensation. But the latter rain will come at the close of the Christian dispensation. Therefore, nothing can be more important to the church than the latter rain, than the church seeking the blessing of that latter rain for the maturing of the gospel harvest. Now, where is the good news? The latter rain is a message of much more abounding grace. A clearer view of what the Savior of the world has done for us. A revelation of his love that constrains every honest-hearted soul to live unto him and not unto self. So that this truth can lighten the earth with its glory. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Obviously, he doesn't want us to be afraid of his returning to this troubled earth. Obviously, he doesn't want that. Anyone having no fear about his first coming need not be fearful about his second coming. For those who believe, it's easy to see how this would be most welcome and exciting news, but will it be the same for everyone? When Jesus went away, there were two angels that assured his disciples, this same Jesus uh, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. Well, who was this same Jesus? He was a physical person. For after his resurrection, he told his disciples to handle me and to see for a spirit doth not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So when Jesus returns, he will be a real person in a real, literal, physical body. And he's going to interact with real people. He's coming in clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also that pierced him, Revelation chapter 1-7 says. But this same Jesus is not one who is with a different character than when he departed. If Jesus, when he departed, was loving and compassionate, he will most certainly be the same when he comes again. Most certainly. Well, You say, but what about those who irrevocably reject him? What about that? His love and his compassion will be seen from their perspective in a different form. It's the same Jesus, 
yet they see him in a different way. You see it different? You see that? It would not be love to perpetuate their existence, an existence which for them would only be endless mercy. In a democracy, presidents, prime ministers, they are elected by people's wishes. But at the present time, the vast majority of Earth's inhabitants either don't know about it, they don't believe it, they don't care about it, or they really don't want Jesus to come back to Earth. And so that being so, then why should he come back to Earth? And two compelling reasons make his personal return to this world necessary. Number one, he is this world's rightful ruler. He has been temporarily ousted in a coup d'etat that was engineered by an enemy, Satan, who subverted Adam and Eve in his rebellion, and Adam and Eve in his rebellion implicated them. But when Christ first appeared as the world's savior, Satan deceived his own people into rejecting him, into crucifying him. But far more than the Jews were involved, for the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, we are told in Acts 4.26. So therefore, the rightful ruler of earth must return. He must take his rightful position and restore his peaceful and beneficent authority after the coup has run its course. The Lord speaks by his ancient prophet, take off the crown in Ezekiel 21, 27. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the lowly and abase the exalted. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is and I will give it the crown to him. And although he came the first time, As a meek and lowly one, he comes the second time as king of kings and lord of lords. But the second reason why Jesus must come is that a time of trouble will engulf the whole world. A new and unhappy development on earth will make his intervention absolutely necessary. There will be a final ominous scene in the last act of the cosmic drama of the ages, And those who are in rebellion against God will issue a terrible and evil decree causing as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed and that no no one could buy or sell except one who has the mark uh, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. In fact, at that fearful time, only a few left on earth will not be bent on self-destruction. And Christ's second coming will thus literally be a rescue mission of world proportions for his own. They will pray for their rescue and their deliverance. They will welcome his coming. Just as a nation ousts a tyrannical and cruel usurper and welcomes back its true sovereign, so his loyal subjects will long, they will even plead for his return. And in the end, the only sane and reasonable people left on the earth will joyously welcome Christ at his glorious return. 
the psalmist represents him as enthroned upon the praises of his people. Throughout history, the vast proportion of the inhabitants of the earth have joined with the great deceiver in his rebellion against God, and yet they have not known what they were doing. The murder of Christ fully disclosed that guilt, but the people didn't realize it. And Christ prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was that hidden layer of rebellion that was something natural to all human hearts that caused the murder of the Son of God, that all the world has become guilty before God. Not only did some far-off Jews or Romans crucify him 2,000 years ago, but the Bible says all alike have sinned. All alike. And today we are all alike guilty of the pain that sin has caused the heart of God. This pain God has experienced since its very inception. And the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Throughout human history, the sinful, cruel, selfish nature of Satan has led some human beings to act worse than beasts. And surely in many cases, the conventional uh, wisdom of society and civilization have kept most of those raw forces of evil passion somewhat in control. There's a little thought that demonstrates how reasonable is the idea that a judgment needs to take place before Jesus comes. Jesus says that the people who are privileged to be resurrected in glory when he returns, of course, will have been accounted worthy of that reward in a judgment beforehand. Luke 20, 35. Otherwise, how could the angels know whom to call forth in the first resurrection? Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. And how could the angels know whom to allow to sleep through until the dreadful second resurrection spoken of in Revelation 20, verse 5? Well, there has to be a judgment before the coming of Jesus for the angels to know that. Who to call forth from the grave in the first resurrection? Who to lay, remain, uh, let them lay asleep for a thousand years? Furthermore, there are going to be two classes that are still living on earth when Jesus returns. Those who are translated without tasting death and those who will be enabled, unable to endure the sight of seeing Jesus come in glory. How will these two groups be distinguished unless there's a judgment before Jesus' coming? Jesus speaks of it in Luke 21, verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. We are living in that time of pre-Advent judgment right now. In Jesus, do you want to be accounted worthy today? As your name passes before the judgment, indeed it may be so. For you, dear heart, are written in the book of life, and that is the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is the book of life. He's the one who bore your sins. And your life, your salvation, was recorded in his death upon the cross. 
Don't hinder that gift. You, your name, you are an elect one in him. Don't hinder the election. Continue each day to follow the cross and let it, that journey lead you home. But actually, no one is going to be judged against their will. Their pre-advent judgment is determined by their choice. Can God ever force anyone into heaven? Can God ever force anyone into, into hell against his or her will? He gives us each a new 24-hour day that we can demonstrate to the world, to the universe, exactly where we want to be, heaven or hell. And God doesn't force that choice. Your conscious moments after waking up in this morning indicate your choice for today. You know, it's wisdom to remember what the Bible says. Each day begins when? Each day begins in the evening. Well, that would be a good reason to have sunset worship, wouldn't it? To begin the new day making a choice not to hinder the gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. And spend your last hour of each day in prayer. And contemplate, contemplation of the heavenly realities. And then let your whole waking hour be blessed and holy. Today I set before you the price that has been paid for your soul. I can't put a, a monetary value upon the life of Jesus. Can you? How many trillions of dollars could you place on that? Well, it's a pearl without price, isn't it? If you discovered such a pearl, would you be willing to empty out your bank account and buy it? Would you? The real fact of the matter is that uh, I don't think that you can buy it. It is a gift. Jesus gives himself to every man, to every woman. Now it's for you to appreciate that. And if you have the capacity to say thank you, then you have true faith. Because if you do not deny that true faith daily, it will purify your heart so that you will be pure even as he is pure. And you will stand when you see him face to face. And you will love the thought and welcome the thought of Jesus coming for you. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.